Hey, fam. What's happening? Muhammad Ali mm. had this strategy while working out. <laughs> he couldn't tell you. He couldn't tell you how many push-ups he did, right? Mm-hmm. You know this. Mm-hmm. I do. He couldn't yeah. tell you how many push-ups he did because mm-hmm. he would do push-ups till it hurt, and then he would start counting. Mm-hmm. And I've started doing that with my body weight exercises, my squats, my lunges, my jumping lunges, my push-ups. And sometimes I like, I actually like counting, like it calms me. So I just, I'll just be sit there and like six, 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 (laughs) so that I can't know what number it is. And I automatically count. So I'll just be like, and I'll start doing like four, 12, 17 for it's just so I can lose count. And I have to do it for like nine of them because in the back of my head, I still got like, I, I know how many numbers I've said. Right. Mm -hmm. Even though I'm not. Yeah, it's it's totally twisted. It's kind of nice. It's it's helping me refocus on the progress versus the the end. Yeah. It's like, oh, I get to 25. I'm done. It's like, no, no, I do. I have a cycle of one of my workouts where I time it for a minute to a minute and a half. And then I just do reps until the timer goes off. But doing whatever the workout is doing it for a minute straight is near impossible because I'm not a super athlete. So I actually do that Muhammad Ali trick because you told me. So when I reach a point where I'm physically just like, I want to stop right now and take a break, I'll count to 10 and then I'll take a break. My favorite part in that is that you said, I just do reps. So that's what the lesson is here today. Do reps. (laughs) Push it. Welcome back to the Morning Comment Podcast. I am your co-host, Keith, with my co-host. Not my co-host. You are not my possession. I am I am the other host of the podcast, and my name is Rodney. And I want to talk to you about compassion, because we, we, Keith and I, are inspiring and driving productive human connection by anchoring humanity in compassionate conversation. And Compassion is very, 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 very important to me and also to Keith. I happen to think that compassion can heal the world, that if we could all realize that people have their own ish going on, that they are people. And just for that very reason, I can levy some grace upon them. I don't have to agree with them. I do not have to like them. That's very important. I'm going to keep saying that every time you do. You really don't have to like them to love them i know it feels like you're in some weird timey wimey alternate timeline when i say these duplicitous things but it's not duplicitous you can actually love somebody that you don't like that's a mic drop moment but i'm gonna keep the mic up just so i can introduce you to today today's guest Mm -hmm. jim h or james h lowry goes by jim um we had quite every time I want to say Lowry, Mike, Mike Lowry, like the conversation. First of all, we'll get into the bio here in a bit. Man, he is an incredibly impressive human being. He's experienced a lot. He's 80 years old. He gave us his time and we are eternally grateful. And we talk about economic development in minority communities, the importance of it. We talk about how he has difficult conversations and we have just a journey of a conversation around how we can lift the right the, the all boats and all benefit as a result in doing it um with economic engine in mind 
we talk about diplomatic, uh, being diplomatic and honest, talking about disagreeing in a way that doesn't blow an opportunity for a relationship with your response. And, you know, I, I think people that, that might get something out of this are people that are, are, are looking for success, looking for a definition for success, looking for a definition of wealth. And then trying to understand what the balance and or harmony of those things is and, and how one might go about attaining them. I think this might be a good conversation for you. If you're interested in building a black community, if you're interested in building minority communities and, and what needs to happen, uh, if you're white and you want to know what you need to do or what you could do, if you are in a member of one of those communities, you want to know what you could do. This conversation has something in it for you. So uh, I'm just going to say hop on out to uh, moreincommonent.com to check out the all the things related to More In Common. And one of those things is Keith and I uh, sitting down and partnering with and guiding organizations on how to break people out of echo chambers so that everybody can be heard, seen and valued. And, and we're consulting and we're helping organizations grow their culture so that they can be who they want to be and express what they want to express. You know, with whom do you want to work? What do you feel satisfied with in terms of your net worth? What do you want to do in terms of helping other people or helping your community or helping your race? And once you define what's important to you, a long-winded way of saying you've defined your success. James H. Lowry is a business icon, sought-after speaker, strategic advisor, and nationally recognized workforce and supplier diversity expert and pioneer. Lowry was the first African-American consultant for global consulting firm McKinsey & Company in 1968. Later, he became the first African-American senior partner at the prestigious Boston Consulting Group, where he led the firm's workforce diversity, ethnic marketing, and minority business development consulting practice. Lowry continues to serve as a senior advisor to BCG. While heading his own private consulting firm, James H. Lowry and Associates. And in the early 60s, Lowry was an associate director with the U.S. Peace Corps stationed in Lima, Peru, where he met Senator Robert F. Kennedy, who recruited him to be a staffer at the New Bedford Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation in Brooklyn. While there, he, along with Bed Stuy, Resident and actress Roxy Roker co-hosted the pioneering television show Inside Bedford Stuyvesant, New York City's first program written, produced, and presented by Blacks at a time when Blacks were largely invisible on television or seen only in news footage about riots, protests, or crime. Kind of similar today. In 1985, Lowry also co-hosted the groundbreaking television show MBR, The Minority Business Report. And in addition to his entrepreneurial endeavors, Lowry is a teacher, mentor, and leader across sectors. Lowry encapsulated his 30-plus years of experience in the field of minority business development in the book he co-authored in 2011, Minority Business Success, Refocusing on the American Dream. His new book, Change Agent, a Life Dedicated to Creating Wealth for Minorities is an intimate memoir that demonstrates the power of iconic mentors and pivotal opportunities leveraged across the globe and offers solutions to the ever-widening wealth gap that plagues Black and Brown communities today. All right, Jim, 
Welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. My pleasure. So before we get into the meat of all of this, we've started a new theme since we are about driving productive human connection by anchoring humanity and compassionate conversation. We'd like to go back to your tip for navigating difficult conversations, which was be diplomatic, but be honest. What does that look like for you? Well, I think, you know, if you if you go back over my career, and I think the career of many people who, who deem successful, you can't have an immediate reaction to something that deep down you know is not correct. It's wrong. And you can blow it. You can blow it with your reaction. So the main thing you want to do is to be able to not agree, but diplomatically tell them there's a difference of opinion and share that in a way that they would listen, as opposed to being turned off in the first five minutes if you reacted in a in a very negative, very spontaneous, and a very almost challenging way. So that's what I've learned. So it's not something I could tell you I, I did it when I was in my 20s. But over time, when I had larger goals to shoot for in terms of affecting change and being a leader and all like that and being you know successful, I had to develop that skill. How did you figure that out? Or did you learn it? It was taught to you? Well, I think for most of the young people on, on, on this Zoom, they should realize you're going to all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. The key is, do you learn from your mistakes? Do you, you know, and, and it's nothing worse than having people keep making the same mistakes over and over, not being able to look inside and accept the fact that maybe they're not successful, but what they did, not what people did to them. And so when you, when you start doing that, you, you start developing and you have that. And, you know, I think the highest compliment I've ever received is from my daughter, who said, Daddy, you're probably the most in perspective uh, elder that I know. And I still do it. I mean, I still look inside and say, how could I have had that situation differently? But when you make mistakes and get punished by your mistakes, that should have an impact on what you do and how you do it in the future. I think that's a skill that I have. And I one of the things for me is being able to see, like if it was me in that position, I wouldn't want to be taking the task in a way that made me feel some kind of way or made me feel shame. So it kind of helps me in most cases, direct how I, how I respond. But I love that. I love that tip. Yeah. I wanted to follow one, one other thing that you said in that answer that I think is key is when you do respond, respond in a way that isn't going to, that's going to have the other person help understand what you're saying without taking offense or getting angry. How, do you go about doing that depending, I mean, cause you talk to a thousand different people and they might all have a different way of receiving that information, right? You know what the key is? The diplomatic preface is before you answer, you preface it in a way that allows the conversation and communication to occur. Example would be, I might be wrong on this, but okay. You know, I said, oh, those, doubt, not shutting the door on future conversation. So you facilitate that with your intro, which you don't want to say disarm the other person, but you want to say, I'm going to communicate in a way that I'm going to hear you and you're going to hear me. So the that's why I call it the glorified preface. 
the thing I love about it, and this is something that we talk about in our consulting practice and other things, like you can only control your own approach. You can only control your own actions. You can only control your own response. Like you can't force the other person not to take the fence. You can't force them not to say something offensive, but you can certainly maintain connection if you can control the productivity of it. And you can still be right and you can find your way to write without doing it in a, a modern 2020 way, 2021 way of, of doing things, social media way of doing things, I guess we could call it. As we get into a little bit more of the meat, you did say one thing in there. I just wanted to ask, you said uh, people who are deemed successful. How do you look at success? How do you characterize success? I always say that the individual, you know, has to define success from their perspective. And like, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever read a book that called you know, Think You're Rich by Napoleon Hill. And Napoleon Hill says, you know, at 55, look back on your life and say, you know, what goals did you achieve? And I did that when I was in my 30s. And then, and I came back and I, I read what I put. In, when I was in Africa when I wrote it. And I achieved all my goals, you know. And so, but these are my goals. These are my goals. It wasn't, you know, I didn't want to be on the cover of Jet. You know, but I wanted to be a change agent in this field of minority business, and I did it. So it, it, it it's for the person to to do that. And with even young people, when I do a lot of personal coaching, I say the same thing to them. They said, you know, look where you want to be. You know, with whom do you want to work? You know, what do you feel satisfied with in terms of your net worth? You know, what do you want to do in terms of helping other people or helping your community or helping your race? And once you define what's important to you, a long-winded way of saying you define your success. But if you keep chasing after what other people are going to do and how they define you, you're going to have a hard time. You might be chasing your your tail for the next 30 or 40 years. I think it's uh, fair to say you will be chasing (laughs) because there's always somebody, always somebody ahead of you. The the way, there's a lot of different areas of your life that weigh into this. It's not just feeling joy. It's not just your personal finances. It's not just your professional success or your family. It's all of those things, culmination of all those things. And I think in my life, when I've been out of balance, when I've been out of balance, it has been like I'm over prioritizing, I'm making money and then everything else is just shit. So I, I, I love that. Love that answer. Can we talk about relationship with money and expecting good things? You, it, this, you actually somewhat touch on this on the very first page of the book and talking about your parents' jobs and your position in the neighborhood because of that. And so I'm guessing that has a lot to do with you being able to, and I'm, and I'm presuming and being presumptuous here that you have a good relationship with money. Yeah. But like, how did you form this relationship with money and form this relationship with success, accepting success, expecting success? Like where, can you talk us through that a little bit? But there are about two or three questions there, Rodney. But mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, I'll try. I'll try and dissect each one of them. Right. Called out. <laughs> yeah, I, love it. I did it. I did the multi question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm still old enough, but I can still pick that stuff up. You know, maybe three or four years, I won't be able to do this. But so we're, we're hot now. Okay, I can do it. I can we do it. we got it documented. <laughs> we know you can. Okay. So I would say the first thing is you know which is very important is to say, you know, what do you think about wealth? And, you know, you define, once again, your own definition of wealth and what wealth is 
what you can touch it, what you want to do with wealth, how do you want to invest, how do you want to you know, take wealth and use it for other things, and what brings you inner satisfaction that you've achieved your goal in terms of accumulation of capital and wealth. So these are all kind of personal decisions, once again, you know, but I, you know, I think for me to start off to answer your first part of the question is when I saw going to a private, very exclusive private school in Chicago in the 50s, now this is in the 50s, not the 60s and 70s, this is in the 50s, and saw who are the people who are wealthy, you know, how they made their wealth and, you know, what they did with their wealth. It just made me think about wealth in a different way. So if you took the 50. What were the demographics of that school? In Chicago, there are three exclusive private schools. There's one, the University of Chicago, which is very based on University of Chicago. University of Chicago, men's kids and, uh, and students who were, were kids of professors at the University of Chicago. Very exclusive. John Rogers went to, you know, I can name other people. Arnie Duncan, who was the secretary of education, went to that school. Then on the north side, they had two schools. One was Latin, and there's a Boston Latin, and there's a Chicago Latin, which was very exclusive at WASP private school. So when I was going to my school, there were token Jews at that school. Mm. Token. I mean, the very wealthiest Jews got into that. But we're talking about token Jews. And then there was this other school called Francis Parker, which was built on being progressive. And they went out of their way initially to have a disproportionate, and it's in the book, a disproportionate number of people of color on scholarship going to this school. And it was predominantly the leadership of the school was Jewish. So there was a Jewish, you know, progressive mindset and mission. And it was supposed to be embryonic democracy. I never even knew what the word meant at the time. It was a big mission statement of thing. And so that's what it was. And so I, I got exposed to that at a very early age. And so not that I was going to be, and I never have been a person who just worships capital or worships capital to accumulate as much money. I always want to accumulate enough capital so my family could be secure. And it gets back to what you said earlier, Rodney, so that my daughter, or I was hoping it could be more, would be able to inherit to buy that $1.3 million house in LA, be like all the other kids that went to that school. So that was always my goal, to have enough money. So if she wanted to buy a house or whatever that, or she didn't want to do anything but be an artist, if she just wanted to be a singer, she had that freedom to be able to do that. And I felt that that was my obligation in terms of creating wealth. So I had my own personal goals, what I was going to do with wealth. But it was never something I, I every day I got up, and I got to make more money, I got to make This brings me back to the, this question that I, I wanted to ask about your book, which you very much focus on the economic and wealth development in minority communities to gain essentially social and political power, right? And that's how equity happens. And there's a stat that you call out specifically over the last 30 years where white wealth has gone from $100,000 to $140,000 per family. Hispanic wealth has gone up. Asian wealth has gone up. But black wealth has gone from 14000 to 11000 Yes. And you you in it you give a lot of great insights for the varying black and brown communities across this country to do 
to gain that wealth. And there is one theme that intersperses a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. That's collaboration. That's partnership, both globally and locally. Why do you think, and if you don't have an analytical answer on this and it's personal opinion, we totally accept it because your opinion matters. Why do you see that being a challenge right now? And you didn't fall prey to it. Mm-hmm. You kept going. Yeah. So I'm asking the two-part question is really your personal experience on that and why you think it's a, a macro problem. Why do you think that is a, an issue today? I'll answer very, very candidly. And there are now books being written on it. My friend Sean Rochester wrote, wrote a book called Black Tax. When he did University of Chicago MBA, he did deep research on how much money because of discrimination and racism was never going into the black community. This is not a new phenomenon. This is a phenomenon that this 400 years, okay? It's a 400 years phenomenon, how black people were used to create wealth for white people. And you guys know, because you're very smart, you know the power of cotton in terms of the growth of this nation. And, and it was cotton, not capital, but it was bodies that people were using on, on the stocking that created the New York Stock Exchange. It was, it was, it was the bodies that how many slaves did they have in the South to produce cotton? And once cotton got the cotton gin, how that became cotton became the number one export around the world. But it was based on the backs of black people and the backs of slaves. And even after independent after slavery was abolished, there were the same black people in the in in the fields doing the same thing and they had all kinds of laws to make sure they were there picking the cotton so that you could have a Wall Street, that you could have the whole New England manufacturing production that created America. So this is a 400-year thing. My dad and I were actually talking about this. We were were talking about video editing, and then we got into talking about the Emancipation Proclamation and, and the reason that Lincoln did what he did. And it wasn't it wasn't the altruistic means that we all thought. I mean, he's, there's letters where he talks about this, this, this was shutting down the, the unstoppable economic engine of the South and redistributing it to the rest of the country in a very methodical way. Right. So when you really put it in those terms, you got to answer your second question. OK, why is it important? Now, I don't know if you guys saw the two part documentary on the black church that was on public broadcast. You really ought to do it. And it's deep because and it, my good buddy John Legend was executive producer of that. So it's deep. And, and Skip Gates is it's Skip Gates. So when you start thinking about the South and you had all these people every day going into the cotton fields and being, you know, punished and beaten and tried, you know, it's just terrible. It's a terrible thing even coming across. And then you see how important those bodies were in creating wealth. The only thing that kept the people going was the church. So they would they would allow the preachers. Okay, I'm I'm going somewhere with this. They allowed the preacher to be the leaders to give these people who were just everyday suffering unbelievable to at least get them enough spirit and hope and life after death so they could perform while they were here to create wealth. So then who became our leaders? The preachers. So now you go forward 
to the Civil Rights Committee, who were our leaders? Reverend Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was a preacher. Jesse Jackson is a preacher. You know, Reverend Sharpton's a preacher. In a way, you know, Malcolm was a preacher. But we never talked about Black business people being leaders. In any other group in America, who are the leaders? Business. Business. Business leaders. In the Cuban, yeah. Cuban American community in Miami, who are the leaders? It was the Iranian leader. You, know, you, you guys in LA, you know how much Iranians buy much property in LA and how they co-invest. Okay. You name it, Jews all over. I mean, for history, I mean, people are shocked at how few Jews are in the United States. Six million, seven million, ain't many. But they coalesced around money. They coalesced in creating, you know, relationships to bring wealth. And what did that do that gave them power? Now, you guys, you're younger. You got to ask the question, why did we ever do that? We have tried. We have tried. I mean, you got Tulsa, right? You got you, there's, that in the book. Yeah. There are countless examples of Black excellence and Black wealth being burned to the ground, being raised to the ground, which is, I think, somewhat interesting about the world right now with Bitcoin, blockchain, some distributed systems that are, are a little harder to touch. But we'll see where that goes. But it is a good question. Like, why haven't we done it? And, and how do we do it? And how do we do it now? How do we get there? What you guys are doing are important. I mean, to me, you asked me the question earlier on, why, what keeps me going in the morning when I get up and meet guys like you and women and people? I think it goes both ways. I think even within our race, that we have people who are thinking differently. They're thinking big. They think about coalescing in a way we've never coalesced before. You know, we've never had. And, and in my book, with the 10 things I think Black people got to do differently, I said, we got to stop crabs in the barrel. But that also has been institutionalized and codified within our society. That is not a happenstance. So we, we got to get out of that if we're going to be able to coalesce. And the other is that I think, you know, Keith, I'll pick on you. And I said this, you know, last year, June, Juneteenth, a big speech. I said, look, if we're going to solve this problem, it's going to be white people going to be solving the problem. We can, we can identify the problem. We can do better at what we do to add to the solution to the problem. But at the end, it's got to be white people. And so when I saw, you know, the people coming together, you know, behind the assassinated, the, the killings in, in Florida and, and these young kids of all races coming in holding hands and Black Lives Matter, you see the people, you know, going out there holding hands and candles who are white, black, young, gays, you know, it, coming together. To me, that represents as a nation we might survive. Around the world, too. People are rallying around it. Can we click on this? I think it's important specifically for the audience or anybody who ever listens to this on the sentiment. And you can pick on me all day long. I accept the challenge of white people solving the problem. How do you see that happening? I think, you know, it'd be very interesting. I mean, I think for me, and I say this, and I say it to my white friends, both within the company and outside, it is in your best interest to solve it. And if you only think in terms of the next quarter or the next year, you know, you're going to miss something. And you're seeing it happen, and, and you guys are part of it, you know, the, putting in front of people the truth of what's happening in 2021. And, and if we don't get this together, you know, there have been great nations that suffered. I'm not saying anything will happen to happen. This, this nation, it just won't be the same. It won't be the same. It won't be as powerful. It won't be as it, just a fun place to live in. It's going to be when you see people killing Asians because 
You know, and they say it, it had nothing to do with being Asian. That's not true. You're seeing Asians being attacked every day uh, because somebody said, you know, the Chinese flu. You know what I mean? So it's not going to be a fun place for my daughter to, to come up and bring her, bring her kids up. So I think it's in the best interest of the leaders of our country to see you can look at next quarter's profitability. You can look at your shares. They're going to grow up. There's trillions of dollars are going to be invested. Companies that we're going to rebound. It was the GMP is going to grow by two or three percent. That's huge. You know, if we don't get it together and really have a positive impact on, on low income people, irrespective of race or low income communities, the chickens come home to roost. And that's what I tell them. It, it is not. It's a short term game, but you got to look beyond that. And that's why you got to make the investment now in the right things with the right people and approach it in the same systematic way you look at a business decision. It's the same approach. And they're not different rules for trying to turn around a dying ship or a dying company. It's the same approach with the same people. If you get it together, everybody's going to win. There is a lot of things that in my mind that I want to tie together vocally. And I hope I do a good job in a concise way. And if I don't, I'm going to edit it. (laughs) So it comes out cleanly. So we had a guest on, a professor who's writing a book about the generational trauma that white people face. Now, he's doing it from a a social justice perspective, and we had a really good conversation about it. And this is one of those areas that generationally in historically American white families, there is a perspective of zero sum. If black people rise up, white people lose, and it's going to be consequential. You fast forward to 2021, and we are actually the white white people, as defined in American census, are declining in population for the first time in the history of this country. And by 2025, expected to decrease by a couple of percentage points. Every other group in this country defined by census is on the increase. Not huge, but marginally. Now, Mike Pence came out and said, as a vice president, in one of his offshoot meetings, uh, something to the effect that we need people to have more babies, right? What he's saying is we need white people to have more babies if we're going to have long-term GDP growth. And what I love that you say in your book is that because I'm tying this together, that's not, I would say that's not necessary when you have 30, 40, to be over 50% of the population, when you focus your energy on their economic growth, because this is not a zero sum game. This is a, a rising tide floats all boats. There's plenty of opportunity out there for everybody. If you focus your energy on creating equity as the power dynamic, not just bringing in more white babies, you will have more domestic product growth over time than you would if you just produce more kids. And I love that point in your book. Yeah, obviously all the other things like our interview weren't in the book, but just that idea, like putting that numerical reference around the wealth gap and how much of this population is in that lower tier of wealth. And if we focus on it, like we're all going to get better. We're all going to be better. Let, let me give you a very quick and simple answer or, and deal with uh, numbers. And it might vary. You guys keep score. But in 20, 2040, 43, 44, 
there are two numbers that jump out at us. Now, there might be reasons why things don't happen this way, but pretty much is going towards, by that time, the majority of the people in America will be not white. The majority of the people by 2043 will be will be non-white, okay? For the first time in American history, yeah. What else is, you know, I'm a professor out there. What else is going to happen around 2043 unless we do something different? We will not have any money in Social Security. Think about it. So I say people, and I write this, I've been writing for 10 or 15 years. We got to get our act together now to take the people of color to be more involved, more positively, more impactfully involved in the free enterprise system. If we believe in the free enterprise system, so we will have people producing wealth to support the social security. We cannot build that up if the vast majority of the people of color are receiving social net worth, I mean, not net worth, but a safety net donation. Social benefit. It doesn't work, people. It doesn't work in a free enterprise system. We have to create more wealth. And what I've argued is we have to create wealth together. I, I'll, You see in the book, I talk about strategic partnerships. I think we have to do a better job within our community to be better players in this. But we will never win if we do it by ourselves. We have to have strategic partners who are women. We have to have strategic partners who are black and and strategic partners who are white. And I even say in the book, we have to have strategic partners in the black diaspora, where you have people in the Caribbeans who want to still work with people and invest with and work with people of color. We have billionaires in Africa who want to work with black billionaires in America. There's, we got a window. We got in about 20 or 35 years. We got to get all this stuff working or we're going to be in bad shape. And even I said that in South Africa, I've I, I lectured in South Africa. And, and when I went to you know, my executive program at Harvard, I had people from South Africa, from the big corporations. And that's right around when Mandela was getting out. And they were leaving the country. They were going to Australia. They were going anywhere. Out of fear. I said, don't leave. Stay. Let your sons and daughters be a part of the new wave and create businesses together. You know, some did. Some left. They went to Australia. But I mean, it's the same thing. There's a huge cultural component to this. Like you mentioned Iranians and Jews and on a macro level, it seems like this is very much a conversation of addressing the scarcity mindset that I want to say capitalism seems to perpe- seems to perpetuate. At least that's how I, I've interpreted it. Like, if I'm going to get mine, then that means you can't get yours. But now I see I think what I what I understand now and I think people that have money understand this is that money is everywhere. In fact. This country prints it almost all the time. Like it is, it is abundant and it is not that hard to get, but we got to switch people from that scarcity mindset or find or try to switch people from scarcity to abundance so that they'll be willing to work together. Cause I think there's a lot of Keith, we had a previous guest that said it, there's a lot of distrust and a lot of fear about coming to the table even in the diaspora, right? Like, especially in the diaspora or in the community, there's fear of coming together. 
I'm gonna lose mine. You're gonna you're gonna do me wrong. You're gonna They ain't got nothing. So let's let's put all this in perspective, you know. You know, how many I mean how many billionaires we got? In my book I talk about let's we can't have two or three billionaires. We gotta have forty or fifty billionaires. When you got forty or sixty billionaires, then we can spread the wealth and we can create more wealth. You know, and then if they want to fight, that would be stupid because in these other communities, it's the Jewish billionaires investing other Jewish billionaires' businesses. So even there, I've seen examples where they will invest in each other's businesses and everybody wins. You know, I was talking about exclusive things in Chicago. Chicago sometimes can be a very segregated city, but. Oh, yeah. Lived there for 10 years. So, you know, I mean, so the University Club, I integrated the University Club. They didn't have any black people at the University Club. Chicago Club. Then, then the Jews have their, their, their clubs. Okay, the standard club, the Jewish club. So one of my guys from my high school, I said, why don't you have more blacks in, in, in the standard club? You know, I'm saying, I'm there as a guest. I said, why don't you have more blacks? He said, we got a problem with blacks. The only thing we say, if you're going to be a member of the standard club, you know, something like that, you got to give 30% of your, profs, uh, your profits to Jewish, uh, you know, nonprofits. I, I can't argue with that. You know, I can't it's, argue a, that. it's a great idea. <laughs> it is a fantastic idea. I think you gave another, another answer to it right there, Jim. Bezos, Zuckerberg. Gates, Buffett, building investment engines to invest in black communities, to invest in minority communities, and to invest into minority business, like accelerators that help build and teach. And actually, we I'm aware of one that's happening right now with Microsoft for the first time and ever, first time ever, they're building a black partner ecosystem because like I look at my white counterparts who've gone and started these businesses and technology firms, there is a large knowledge gap and there is a large opportunity gap. And those people that I just named could wipe that out. Like hands down, they could just wipe that out. And let me give you a good example of if you, because we're all dealing with similar kind of people who are challenging. Why should we be part of the free enterprise system? Why should we be part of the capitalistic system? Do they ain't doing that for us? They tell me, you know, there's a lot of truth in it. Some of them that didn't work for us, you know, and part of it is our fault, but other things. Let me give you a good example about big wealth. You mentioned those guys. I happened to be on a board for years with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett talked to us about another trustee who's going to start his own company and that we should put money as individuals on the board, not the college, into his company that he was starting. The other guy's name was Bob Noyce. He started Intel. So this little school in Iowa has a multi-billion dollar endowment. I know what the endowments are, all of historically black colleges. I've been trying to build them up, but they ain't got multi-billions. So the power of that one guy, the brilliance of that one guy. Now you take Warren Buffett, and he has a nephew, and I just came across this last week in business. He has been behind the scenes, very quiet, wonderful young guy. This is a nephew. He created a company where all the, the, the nieces and the nephews and the grandsons of the super rich around the world are coming together to invest in great things in developing countries. I've seen your article. I'm so proud. I mean, so here's this quiet guy, you know, and he and, and see Dan Gote, his kids are part of this. And people like that are. So you have this mega connection with the offsprings of these billionaires coming together to do something great. 
So we got to, even with our own community, have to think beyond the next quarter. We got to think where we want to go, where you guys, you guys are my leaders. So where are you going to take your your generation and where, think big on how you're going to get there? And those those endowments, I just wanted to speak, speak on that real quick. Being the president of the board of the Boys and Girls Club in Venice, those endowments make all the difference. Like we, one of our sister organizations in LA that I won't name has a, an amazing endowment. It's not, it's not, yeah, it is multimillion dollar actually. And what they're able to do off of the interest from that and the, what they were able to provide to their community and to the children that they serve is amazing. And so those universities, like you think about the ripple effect of what that university is able to do and what others are not able to do because they're just trying to keep the doors open. They're trying to keep the lights on. They're fighting every day to get just enough to make it by. They're not able to focus on excelling and exceeding and going into new areas. Uh, those endowments make a huge, huge difference. So where do you see, where do you think you see that? Because I was on this board. I went on this board at twenty nine. So you know, I just got off about a few years ago. Where do you think that money goes? When you start thinking about historically black colleges, if you're going to say, okay, where does it go? Okay, where does it go? One, it goes into buildings, obviously. So you can build state-of-the-art science buildings, state-of-the-art, any kind of business, theatrical business. It goes into brick and mortar. But the most important place where it goes is in professors. Think about it. If you got a lot of money, you can buy a lot of good professors. If you ain't got a lot of money, you can't do that. And so I've always said, look, you know, I think a lot of people, and I'm not going to name names and stuff like that, we put more people on boards on historically black college. They ain't giving no money and they ain't raising no money. Okay. Why should they be on the board? I mean, you, you, you have one responsibility to be on the board. Is, is you have a fiduciary responsibility there to build it. And we got to take, we got to do surveys. Of who's on what board? And what are they doing? You know, I'm on Kellogg's board. Uh, Kellogg. The dean said, okay, he's one of you got to, you got to give us pretty some money. Just to be on the board. Just to sit here, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so we got to think differently about all this stuff because it's, it, the, the stakes are too high. And, you know, we can pour money into historical black colleges, but they're not ready to take it and do something with it. So like you did for the Boys Club, Girls Club of Venice, it's just going to a hole. I'm not saying it should. The other thing I would say, and you got me guys going on this, and I'm, I'm just making it rhetorical because I don't want to get in trouble. But... What percentage of you looked at all the historically black colleges, all of them, and you ask yourself, you guys are smart, you Microsoft kind of people, what percentage of those students are in Pell Grants? That will tell you the story about the state and the vulnerability of historically black colleges. I'm guessing it's high. It's very, very high. I was going to say 60, but now I want to say 80. Close, it's closer to 70%. So you've you got a vast majority of these kids are there on a Pell Grant. Take away the Pell Grants, people. You do away with the Pell Grants allocations every year for the federal government. We don't have historical violence. I got you guys thinking about that. Yeah. So I think this goes back it's, This goes back to that, that question. And I'm, I want to dig in on it. Like, why do you think that is like why does that i know we went back and and we're the church leaders and all of that but why do you think that shift hasn't been made 
I think that's a great question, Keith. I think it always comes to leadership. You know, so where's the leadership? It always comes to relationships because, you know, if you go to Yale, Harvard, who's on that board? You know, who's it's a relationship. It might be somebody from Goldman Sachs who knows a good friend at J.P. Morgan Chase. And, you know, they both went in the same class. So they come on the same board. They write big checks. So you got to know who are the checks. I think the other thing, which is is probably going to get me in trouble, is I think there's a mindset that the government is going to be the panacea for everything, especially the black. So if that's your mindset, we got the federal government and they're going to always bail us out. And it's not just for higher education. I think there's a mindset that goes throughout. And what we're, we're you know, using the illustration you use and I use, there's this other other scenario where it is not the government. When the Jews say, if you want to be a part of the Standard Club, you got to give 30% of your profitability to Jewish organizations. That's a different mindset that I think historically been embedded in our minds, that the federal government, and so, and I think right now, very critical period now, of now that we have a disproportionate number of people who are progressive, of color, of color, who are now going into this administration, if most of the focus is on giving money away to dealing with all this money, say 100% of the money, is going to be directed at dealing with historic problems that are besetting our community, that's not a wise decision. I'm saying that we should have a disproportionate, well, not a disproportionate, but a much greater number of uh, initiatives that are economically driven. So that we are in a position to create more wealth as opposed to taking money to, to put the finger in a dike of all these different problems. Do you think, in a way, tying both of these things together, it's self-perpetuating? If we're not investing in our own community, then we can't rely on those that succeed. So we rely on the government because they're the only ones that are going to help us out. Absolutely. If that's not a mindset, if you, we don't have a mindset within our communities, you know, where you guys, I mean, I, and this is happening, I think for better or worse, you know, there are many people like you who are at Microsoft and Microsoft kind of companies, you know, Amazon, you know, BCG, McKinsey, who are saying, I don't know if I want to spend nine, 10 years chasing the golden ring, you know, so I'm, I'm going to put in my time. I'm going to learn what I got to learn. I'm going to establish relationships that will help me when I start my own business. But I ain't going to be here for 20 years looking for the golden Rolex watch. And I think that that is shifting. I don't know if corporate Americas can deal with it the way it's happening, but it's happening. They really don't. I mean, they don't know what you're going to do. And so, you know, and I'll pick on, you know, the company I know well. You take IBM. You take John Thompson. I know John Thompson when he was at IBM and before he went to Microsoft. And so he's chairman of your board. So he paid the price of bleeding blue. He was a high-ranking person, you know, at, at IBM, and he paid the price. And, and, and God bless the fact that he did, and I can name a lot of my friends who did that, and thank God they're in the C-suite to make a big difference in terms of how the monies are allocated. I think we got to have those people, too. we got to have people who are going to stay the course and say, because you got to have people at the table in, in the big room to say, yeah, you know, it's like we're sitting at J.P. Morgan Chase. Jamie's making the decisions, but he's got black people who are very important 
who are making decisions and steering the decisions and, and maybe increasing the goals. And that's very important. But we're going to get a lot of people like you guys out here. They're going to have to leave. But we, when you leave, we got to have a, a place where you can land and you can grow and you can grow great wealth, great wealth. You know, and I think that's important. There's also... And this story just, it just keeps coming to my mind when you talk about the black-white dynamic in the country and what continues to perpetuate that from an adversarial standpoint. When black athletes or musicians or businessmen do, I think about LeBron and what he's done in Akron and creating, you know, a public school that is tuition free for all the students and it's like it's, it's a great he's been criticized by people in the media black and white right stay in your lane you're just an athlete why are you getting involved why are you doing this stuff and you know that bleeds out and you don't you don't hear that like if kevin love started a school people would be like oh good for him he's helping black people right like if JJ, if JJ Watt helps a community, it's like, oh yeah, he's a, yeah. He's a oh, good look, American. Raise your GoFundMe, man. Raise your GoFundMe, right? So it's, it's. I mean, to your point, and this kind of ties back to, you know, white people are a key, key piece to the change. Oh, yeah. Is like stop that shit. Well, I, I think the other thing you got, you know, it gets back to what Rodney was saying, going back to Tulsa. You know, is there a certain amount of fear when you have people and, and this be honest here. When you have smart, brilliant people, in many ways, LeBron is. He's a brilliant player because the way he takes care of his body. He's brilliant in the way he makes people come together. He's a brilliant mind. I've been watching LeBron since his eighth grade when they, you know, won the national championship. Didn't didn't he pay for his buddies to go to college and get their business degrees? And so that like they're his team, like that that are managing his contracts and his businesses. Think about it. That's why he doesn't talk to Phil uh, Phil Jackson today, because Phil Jackson, you know, said, you know, you got a you got this posse, you know, it's sort of mm, like that's you, right. I remember that. Remember that? Now that that's once again characterizing LeBron with some of these other guys who did have a posse, who did go bankrupt. Okay, that did go bankrupt. But LeBron's different, and that's why many of us love LeBron. That's why many of us love Jay Z. Because we're thinking them, they're thinking differently. That's why I love John, not because he's an entertainer. He's a philanthropist. He's a, he's a, it's a John legend. And he cares about all the right things. And he's putting his money where it makes sense. That can be very scary. Now, what, what I'm saying to you, Keith, I'll put it on you again. Because you know the white guy. I love it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Hey, you know, I'm these good at it. I'm good with it. And the Keiths around the country have to go back to where we started this conversation. It is not in your, it's not a zero game with us. It is, if we can get with LeBron and LeBron can get with Bezos' ex-wife and they can invest in this, that, and the other, everybody wins. Everybody wins. So it's a different mindset. I'll add a real quick tangible example to that. So living in South Bay, California, we were just living in Manhattan Beach and we moved out to Redondo. I will tell you this, uh, some of like the houses in Manhattan Beach are amazing. Like, they, they fit the mold of my dream house right on the beach, off the boardwalk, the promenade, beautiful homes. I will never buy a home in Manhattan Beach. It was, it was microaggressions from day one to day last of like, oh, you live here? Did you buy that house? Like all of the little, like it, 
just these little micro chips of like, you're able to live in this neighborhood because we didn't sign off on that. And it just enough to let me know that like, I got to watch myself. And, and whether or not it was real or imagined, it was here. And I think that that exists in so many communities. Like, I know the history. So I'm, I am not flaunting, I didn't wear a hoodie in that neighborhood ever. Like, not ever. And all I wear right now in COVID is hoodies. Because it's just, it's, <laughs> like, it's all I wear. But not in that neighborhood, I wouldn't do it. Because I didn't feel safe. And it's like, yo, like, if I accumulate too much, who's going to take it from me? Like, I'm just waiting. Like, because I know the stories. I know the stories. Who's going to take it from me? Well, I think the other question I pose to both of you guys, and it, I think about this often, I shake my head when I think about the many, many poor white families in this community, in this country, who don't even realize what's happening to them or who's doing it to them. And they then side with the people who are making their lives worse and just dealing with race as Back to what you guys keep saying is the zero game. And, and once again, I don't know how to, I'm, I try. I will keep trying. But it's somebody's got to educate these people. We're all in this boat together. And if, if you, especially low income people and low income people, it don't matter whether you're white or black or green. It, you're low income. When it, COVID hits you, it's hitting you just like, you know, it's hitting a lot of people who are low income white, just as bad as having black. But if they keep thinking that it's happening to them because of black people, we, once again, we're all losing. I just had to pull this up because you reminded me of a Lyndon Baines Johnson quote, because this explains that sentiment, it, that if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. He'll give hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. LBJ nailed that. Like, nailed that's it. exactly what's happening. I use it all the time. We brought up Tulsa. I think there were over 200 similar incidents, obviously Tulsa being the largest across the country at that time. So, I mean, I know we talk about Tulsa a lot and I just want to, I did more for, for the production, want to call that out. Like it's not just one thing. It's not just one time that happened all the time around the country. So the question that I have when we talk about changing the mindset of investing into our, into the communities and going away from government spending, how do you feel about reparations? Depends on how it's, it's defined. I mean, I think to be honest, if we, we do it where you, you define it into, you know, X number of black people, X number of black people, therefore we should get X number of dollars. I don't think it's going to fly. And I, and I would question, is that the best way to maximize the, the money that is owed us? I would prefer if we calculated did all that great analysis of what that that figure is, and maybe next year, you know, working if we can get the right people thinking in the right way, to have a kind of Marshall plan, which is of size. If you add all that money up, to really have a big vision on how we're going to take that what is owed us, reinvest it into black and and, and low income areas to have the greatest impact. I think politically, it still would be a stretch if we could do it. But I think at least we got to have that mindset. Now, I didn't know this until I saw it on 60 Minutes, is that there is, and in Evanston, Illinois, which you know, Chicago, that there was a city councilwoman who got it passed. 
it's the only city where they're going to have reparations. They did their calculation, and everybody who was deemed necessary is going to get a check in Evanston, Illinois. I always thought that that would never happen, but it happened in Evanston, Illinois. So it got me thinking, I don't know where that model comes from, but there is at least we got a model in Evanston, Illinois. They did the right uh, research. They have identified the people and they're going to get a check from from the city. That's the huge. original model. I mean, the U.S. government did approve reparations, and then that lovely, Under lovely Lincoln, president, then, that peach of a president yeah. from the South, went and sliced yeah. it. Uh, after, 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 after Lincoln was assassinated. What about? Well, look at that. I wonder though. why what he was the, assassinated. Well, we had the Freeman Bank. I mean, when you start thinking about the banks that were created, that were supposed to be set up for Black people to grow economically. They were put in the hands of people who didn't have our best interests. They got millions of dollars in the bank, and then within a relatively short period of time, it was they were uh, they were bankrupt. I mean, you Keith, you had brought this up uh, earlier. We had a Block West, one of our previous guests, had mentioned. He's like, "Why? Why is there a church on every corner in the hood?" He's like, "Why don't we have banks? Why don't we have schools?" Like, and and I think to your to your point, expanding on on like that plan, like education financial literacy like it's not just financial literacy it's just like i mean when i think about the basics that even i have learned from my white friend keith that just like nobody in my family knew it's mind-boggling and how simple like some of the like just basic shit that will just propel you in life that just like nobody in my family knew it's not because my family is not intelligent just they didn't know and so i think that focus on not just Two plus two is four education, but like, here's how this shit works. That's all. That's all. Reason I wrote the book. That's the only reason I wrote the book. To be you give some good rules. You give some good, yeah, yeah. To, to say, here's what I know. Here's what I learned. I'm just passing on to you guys. You know, because I learned this, and if I take it to me to the grave, what, what good did that do? And I tell my other friends to write books. I mean, we got to share what we've learned. But I'll give you another question that I'm gonna put it back to you guys, and I want you to think about it. You mentioned you got a church on every corner. We have three liquor stores on the same block. And we got hustlers on the corner selling dope to our kids. So when everybody started talking about, you know, different black communities and, and how they're going down and deterioration, therefore we're going to save you by gentrifying it. How many people are really dealing with broke drug trafficking and drug addiction in a way that will have a major impact on those communities in our country. And as my dad told me, the rough neighborhood he grew up in, Cincy, the police never showed up. Like, they did not show up. There were drugs. And he said, nobody in my neighborhood could afford a yacht or a plane to bring these drugs into this country. They, they, were, they were brought here by somebody. And they weren't brought here by anybody in the community. Well, if you want to take it to the 21st century... Marijuana put so many black people in jail for extended periods of time on an individual basis. Now we have a new industry that is a billion dollar industry that blacks and browns are not a part of. But doesn't this go back to what Rodney was saying about his house? He says, okay, wealth transfer. So who's investing in it? Who's going to make a lot of money? People who have cash. Because you got to have cash in, in, in this new industry because you can't bank it. Okay, so federal crime still. Yeah. Make the money. You got you to spend millions of dollars just on security, protecting your cash so it doesn't go on the ground. So, I mean, it, it always, you got to analyze 
what I'm trying to get people to do is think about it, not in a very vicious way, but you got to be realistic about the power of money. And you you can trace almost anything to the power and the large sums of money and capital. I'm just saying we got to create more capital to just be in the game. Because if you can't, we, yeah, I mean, I think you, you make a really good point because I've always heard growing up cash is king and like nobody could really explain it to me. Granted, there's the yeah, yeah I can negotiate with you on the on the one to one level if I'm paying cash versus, you know, credit card or whatever. But on a much larger level, the ability like I could have a great salary. I could make two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year. But if I don't have any cash, I, I can't invest in anything. I can't put that money that I'm making to work for me. And that's the thing. That's what the black community has been blocked out of. Well, I had a good dear friend who was very prominent. I won't use his name. He's dead now. And he started making a lot of money at a big law firm in D.C. And he'd tell me, Larry, you know, I made so much money this year. I said, it's not how much money you pay to the federal government. It's what is your net worth every year, how it increases. So you keep score, not so much on the money you pay to the feds, but more importantly, on what was your net worth this year as opposed to next year? Thank you for your time. Yeah. So, I, man, so there's something I just want to say. I know there's a question around it, but I just want you, your, your spirit, you have a, um, I'm going to be presumptuous again, an eternally optimistic spirit about you that is encouraging and uplifting. And sometimes you don't see from people who have been in the arena that you're in for such a long time, because it's, it's easy to get mad and, and bitter and angry. And I don't, and I'm sure there are pieces of that for you, but I don't feel it. I, I feel hope. So I appreciate you. Will you give me hope? You guys, you, give you, me guys hope? Are, you guys are the secret sauce. So keep doing what you're doing. And if I can help you on an individual basis or on a collective basis, your business, your podcast, you know, I don't have a lot of time, but I'll make sure I give you time. Okay. Well, thank you. We have one final question. And to extend upon the initial question that Keith asked, uh, as our mission is to anchor humanity and compassionate conversation, want to know what what does compassion mean to you? Compassion is to there's a difference between compassion and passion. Passion is one thing that you've got to have sense of purpose in your life, and that should be a passion that gets you up in the morning to keep you going to really to answer the last question you asked. Compassion is to be able to look at people through their eyes and to know what they have been through and what they're thinking and what they're suffering and not make judgment, but to hear them, feel for them and hope that you can help them, you know, make their lives better.